Good morning. I know many of you are prayerfully considering the pondering anew what the Almighty can do, the, the offering that we're, we're asking you to participate in. We're on board too. Uh, we as a pastoral staff, elders and deacons, all the leaders are praying about this and involved. And uh, I hope it encourages you to know that they have pledged, that is the leaders have pledged uh, $46,860. And uh, so we're going to be prayerfully giving that next Sunday. And we want you to join us. We're, when I was a young and new believer, I remembered, uh, I don't remember the occasion, but I remembered my pastor standing up and sharing what the leadership had pledged to that. And as a young guy, I thought, wow, they're really out in front of us. They're involved. They're engaged. They're, they're in this too. And that meant a lot to me. So I asked the, the leaders if they would also pledge uh, like, like that occasion. And uh, we did. And so uh, we hope that you'll join us in, in meeting this need. I sent out a letter this week. You should be receiving it if you haven't already. And it will kind of lay out the details. But I did explain two uh, Sundays ago that we're ready to just about ready to occupy the building, but the city has laid a few conditions upon us that they want us to meet before we're allowed to occupy it. And those conditions were in our plans all along, but now they are, so to speak, a hurdle. And so that's, uh, that's why we're asking you, if you would, to give over and above your tithes and offerings as the Lord leads, whether it's a little or a lot. And that's always relative, isn't it? It's whatever... Uh, uh, the Lord leads you to do that's most important, and we'll give that with all our heart next Sunday. There's no other way to give unto the Lord. This morning, as we uh, prepare to look at the parables of Jesus, uh, this morning we're continuing our series, Simple Stories, Daring Truths. We're in Luke chapter 12, verse 35 through 40. And I'd like to read that, have you read along. I'm in the English Standard Version, which shouldn't be too far from the wording of your translation if it's not the English Standard Version. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That's us. <laughs> Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Well, I was kind of disappointed with myself last night. I was pretty tired. Um, I took the occasion. I hadn't, hadn't been on my bike in two months. And uh, some friends were riding. So we did about 30, well, a little over 35 miles yesterday. And when you haven't ridden your bike in 
two months and you ride 35 miles. I was having trouble getting around. So I sat down in my chair and I, I was going to watch Undercover Boss because I was going to talk to you just a moment about Undercover Boss. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, Undercover Boss. It's, it's pretty easy to figure out. But I was going to watch it last night, especially since I knew I was going to open what I had to say this morning with the reference to Undercover Boss, and I fell asleep. I didn't... I, I couldn't stay awake. I wasn't alert when Undercover Boss came knocking But Undercover Boss is a show I've caught a few times. I don't watch it religiously. But I love the premise. I love the idea. I think it's, it's so great. If you haven't seen it, The Undercover Boss, uh, the, you know, it's a good title because it's descriptive. Usually a high-ranking executive officer within a company or the owner of the corporation or business himself or herself gets, you know, disguised. So you can't write, I mean, I guess if you've seen their picture on the wall or gotten a letter from them with their picture or something, you wouldn't be able to recognize them because they're all made up in disguise and they, they go out into all facets of the company's operation and... (laughs) They work right along the side of uh, various, from entry-level, mid-level, you know, and the whole premise of the thing is, uh, hey, we've got this new person that has come into work, and we want you to train them and tell them how to do the job. And so, you know, you could just think of, I don't know where you work, uh, you could be a teacher in a school or Perhaps in some kind of uh, industry, you've got a job, maybe you're a high-level person, and it, it seems legit. Somebody higher than you says, look, we want you to work alongside this person, show them all that you do, train them how you do it, and it's the boss of bosses. And what's interesting, and I love this part, is the boss gets acquainted with these people, gets to know them along the way, and finds out what they're really all all about, gets their backstory, if you will, or their background. And in many cases, these folks are going through difficult times, and yet the boss gets to see them in, in their work in a way maybe nobody else does. And of course, to the boss's benefit, the boss learns all about the operation and often because the boss leaves his office and gets down there and works, you know, right alongside everybody else in various aspects of the operation, the boss learns new things about his or her company and how to improve it and so forth, but also about those individual workers and what fascinates me is that sometimes those workers are so conscientious and diligent. I mean, they're not maybe making the big bucks, but they're invested in that company. They want to see it succeed and do well. They work as though they want to honor the reputation of that company. And I can only imagine what it's like to be an undercover boss and realize you have employees like that. How rewarding. How encouraging. And perhaps most importantly, 
How fortunate for those employees, because occasionally there's an employee that isn't doing his or her job, isn't really invested in the company, grumbles and gripes all the time. And so every episode ends with the boss revealing his or her identity to the people that they've worked with and often rewarding and rewarding those employees with promotions or financial rewards. Often it's very touching as the boss learns about difficulties, maybe an illness in the family or a dream that could never be realized because of the hard times they're in. They'll reward them with the opportunity to pursue that and do that. And the, then the boss talks about changing conditions and making improvements. And in extreme cases, sometimes termination, which is always hard. Well, the reason I mention undercover boss is because to me it's a parable of this parable. I can't think of a better example. Even though there are some real differences, the heart and soul of Jesus' story, this simple story, and the daring truth is we will be most fortunate if when the master returns, we're alert and awake and busy doing what we're supposed to be doing when he arrives. And that's, in a sense, the essence of what takes place in Undercover Boss. In fact, Jesus begins what he has to say in verse 35, and he's just talking to his disciples. And he, say, he says, you know, stay uh, ready for, for work, or literally, stay girded with your loins girded. Um, guys wore robes and dresses back in those days, and, and so... You couldn't do a lot of things with a robe, and so you would, you would take the back of it, and you would take it up and gird it into your waist belt, and that way you could run. It was like shorts. I've occasionally seen women do that when they're wearing dresses. And that was, that was the way you appeared when you were ready to do something athletic or or challenging. And then he says, keep your lamps burning, which is also significant. It's then that he tells the story, which is of interest, because uh, the story is to encourage them. And basically, he says, be ready like these terrific servants are ready. And that's what he shares in verse 36, talking even about the fact that even into the second and third watch of the night, the Jewish people always divided the night into three watches. So he's imagining them waiting even deep into the evening. But what I like about this parable and what's energizing to me, this story, unlike other stories where Jesus is talking about being ready, and in other teaching where Jesus is talking about being ready, here in this story, he talks about what it means to be ready. And what it means to be ready is to be doing what we're supposed to be doing, what the master asked us to do. And that's encouraging because uh, I think, in fact, over the years, uh, when I, especially as I was uh, kind of young in my faith, I wrestled with kind of being not involved in what he was doing and thinking about him returning at any time. C.S. Lewis says, uh, 
It's stirring to imagine that the present could be the last night of life on earth as we know it. This morning, uh, Pastor Brian, who leads us in our worship Sunday to Sunday, said perhaps this could be the day he returns. That's a stirring thought. And it causes me to engage in introspection. And I can't help but feel like I'm not the servant I want to be. And I imagine that's how you feel too, because I feel like I think we're just the same. We want to be ready. We want to say, I'll get the door. I'm going to be awake. I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be engaged in the things that Jesus has called me to do and what he's called us all to do. And that is, is to make disciples. As he told his disciples on his departure, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we want to be about that trajectory, that focus in our lives. It's about leading a life that challenges and inspires people to recognize and acknowledge who Jesus Christ is and to equip them, to help them understand it, to challenge them, to give them what they need. And when we think about this, staying dressed for action and keeping our laps, lamps burning, Jesus is saying, these disciples, these, excuse me, these servants are the kinds of disciples you want to be, my followers, being about my business, doing what I've asked you to do 24-7, looking after my house, helping in my work, always being there to open the door when I come home. And like the undercover boss, when he reveals himself, we are found fortunate because we're busy in the Lord's business. And I can't think of being more fortunate. That's really what he says when he talks about them being blessed, which he mentions twice blessed, being awake and watching. We're never more fortunate than to be busy in the Lord's business. You know, I, I made a decision to follow Christ that I didn't even, couldn't even fathom how life-changing it would be, but at the, at the time... I was 18 or 19, I could figure it out, but don't ask me to do the math right now. But it was 1972, it was April, and it, it meant making some lifestyle changes. It, it, it meant practically focusing on different things in my life. It practically meant that I had to make some commitments to things that I had never committed myself to before. The Lord uses this in our lives to challenge us where we are, no matter how long we've been walking or following the Lord, to make some adjustments, make some commitments. Because otherwise, we won't be 
about his business. We won't know what his business is. We won't be engaged in it. And because I made those decisions then, I think it's a pretty straight line. I'm not, I mean, in my life. Then I'm standing here kind of talking about these things to you this morning. There is the reality that the choices we make make a difference in our lives because they're choices of faith. They're choices of following. They're choices of living for him. And so it is, they engage us in his business. This story, the simple story that begins in verse 36, runs a couple of verses. The simple story is about a holiday. It's about the master of the house leaving the house in the hands of his slaves or servants, and he goes to a wedding feast. And, of course, wedding feasts were not like today. In our day, generally a wedding less, what, you know, two, three, four hours at most. But in those days, a wedding feast lasts a week, lasts a long time. So he says, hey, everything's in your hands. Stay alert, stay busy while I'm away. You never know when I'm going to be back. It could be a day, it could be two days, it could be three days, five days. But when I come, I want to find you awake and about my business. But what's interesting to me is the story turns into more than just a master who's away for a holiday when you have the mention of the Son of Man. And the mention of the Son of Man is interesting because it's kind of like an epilogue to the simple story. Jesus says a master of a household wouldn't even leave if he he anticipated a burglar, a burglar that would dig through. And when he mentions the Son of Man, because he's using the parallel, which throughout the New Testament. The idea of Christ's return is equated with the arrival of a burglar because we never expect a burglar. Shelley and I have been living in, in a house now for 14 years. That's the longest that we as a couple have lived at any point in our marriage. And we have not been burgled yet. But in the house just before this, we lived, uh, let me, we lived almost six years. And when it was burgled, we never imagined it would come. And we were just totally devastated to find out that somebody had broken into our house, gone through all of our things, taken some of our most precious possessions, which have never been recovered. And I got to tell you, I mean, this message isn't about a better alarm system, or a neighborhood watch. But Jesus is making the point that we never know when he's going to come, and yet it's a reality that we have to be prepared for. And so in this, what's what's the answer? The answer is to be about his business and be busy in his business and to realize we're never more fortunate. We're never more blessed. We're never going to be more alert. We're never going to be more ready than we are when we are involved and engaged in the business of the Lord. 
And that is going to call us to make some decisions about the way we lead our lives. It's going to call us to to say, I'm going to get involved in some stuff. I'm going to get in. If I need to be discipled, I'm going to ask someone to disciple me. If I have, and by the way, you never need to be advanced to disciple others. In fact, you'll grow faster. You'll grow deeper in Christ when you set out to just take a friend that you know already and say, you know what, we ought to spend some time each week in God's word in encouraging one another, praying for one another. And I gotta tell you, when you take on that responsibility, and there are so many helps out there that you can you know, engage in and get help, but when you invest your life in somebody else's life for Christ's sake, you'll grow. And you'll become a person of greater faith because you'll realize all the little things you do. You need to depend on him for energy, strength, perspective. I mean, it'll become, your life will become more vibrant spiritually. There are ways you can do that through our small groups here at the church, our our groups. Many people get involved working in different areas with youth and different projects, missions work and so forth. But you don't have to depend just on the church. That is an easy way, but to get involved in someone's life and say, I want to tell you about Christ. I want to help you grow in Christ. I want to walk with you in Christ. I don't want us to lose sight of that. I mention and draw your attention to underscore the Son of Man because that puts everything on a little higher footing. You see, it was... When Jesus was before the religious leaders in Jerusalem being interrogated, it was hostile. They were looking for evidence to destroy Jesus. He had foretold his disciples this was going to happen. And the high priest challenged Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus responded, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated in the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Wow, that's an apocalyptic vision. That's something that blows our minds, and yet that is part and parcel of our Christian faith, our belief in Jesus Christ, is that this heavenly figure who died and rose again is going to return. And that is embodied in this simple story, but it's emphasized when he refers to the Son of Man coming like a thief when he is least expected. We want to be found in position and ready, waiting patiently, waiting expectantly, waiting faithfully. And I want to talk just briefly from a perspective of how we can not only understand this parable because it's, it's really quite simple, but I want to draw out a little application, and I'm, I'm going to shoot some of this through my own life. And so, we, yes, we want to wait patiently, but I want to draw our attention to eyeballing his return, eyeballing the future, if you will, or pinging off the future. I think that's very, very important. And that, of course, is at the heart of verses 35, living expectantly. And then 
energized by his reciprocity, which is brought out in verse 37 and 38, and then faithfully living earnestly about his revelation. And I just want to talk about that for, for just a few minutes. I use the expression eyeballing his return because I've found it's, it's easy to forget that he could come any moment, any time. But he is going to return. And do we give place to that future? That's our future. Sometimes I don't know that we appreciate the power of the future that is ours, that he is going to return. Sometimes we who are servants in his household, we who are his disciples, can grow so accustomed to the things of the Lord that we forget the motivating power, the sweetness of a new future that is ours because we have recognized what God has done in Jesus Christ and the fact that we have a hope and a future that the rest of the world doesn't even have. And I want us to be thinking about pinging off that future. We live in a real danger of, uh, well, you notice in the parable, Jesus emphasizes the night. Obviously, the days will pass and there'll be hours of light and there'll be hours of darkness. But he emphasizes the night, even the deep watches of the night, the second and third, and being alert and awake. It's almost as though the imagery is to invoke the darkness, the night of the world in which we live. It's a world without the same hope. And that hope should generate in us an activity, an energy that is so very different than the world's because in Christ we live for him. We live selflessly. We live even humbly knowing we have a very different, different future. The future gives us meaning and significance in the present that is very different than the future that other people have and try to make and create sense out of. And we can be motivated to invest in the present knowing our future belongs not to futility, but Jesus Christ. And I think there's a real danger for us at times to become lax, to become lazy, if it, as it were, to become, so to speak, too comfortable and not realizing that we can become self-indulgent and inactive in the work of the Lord. Second Peter 3, 2 through 18 mentions scoffers who say, where's the promise of his coming? And you might want to read chapter two, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 18. It might encourage you to hear what Peter has to say to those who say, where's the promise of his coming? Is he coming at all? We, can, we don't believe he's coming. 
But I just want you to think about a different future than the one that we have in the gospel. To realize that our deepest and greatest needs are met in the gospel and the gospel alone. That there is a personal God, that he loves us, that he loves us so much and so overlooks our deficiencies, um, the things that would disqualify us from his love. He's dealt with all of that in Jesus Christ. He's saying, you are worth a son to me. And that Jesus should die on the cross and rise from the dead. Victory, conquering death. Read the philosophers. Read the religious leaders. Read the body of history's literature and see if you hear a clarion voice like anything that we have in the gospel. Even in the Old Testament, we have a God who is so virtuous, moral, so loving and good. And I think sometimes we take that for granted and it doesn't factor in to our view of the future. And yet that view changes everything about our present. I'll have a little more to say about that in a moment, but to live expectantly and energized. I just lost the screen here. Jeff? Thanks. To live expectantly and energized by his reciprocity. There's something very powerful that says, that says uh, in verse 37 and 38 that when he comes and they, he finds them awake, uh, that he will get girded for service and he himself will serve those who serve him. I'm energized by a Lord who asks us to do things but is not above doing them himself. In other words, we're patient. And, uh, you know, patience is not just waiting. It's how you wait. And it's to be active and involved. But he says, when I arrive, I will, as it were, take the position of a servant and serve you. I, Howard Marshall, says a reward such as this is beyond human imagining in the picture of the master serving the servants because that was never done. Think about that. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ are challenged and encouraged to love and to forgive and to be Christ-like toward others. And I got to be candid with you, it's hard work. It's costly. If you, if you have tried to love someone else who is difficult, obdurate, harsh, uh, inconsiderate, mean, and mean again, it's costly to love that person, to be kind to that person, to look beyond their faults to meet their needs. That's costly. It will cost you emotionally. It will cost you physically. That's what we're called to. We are, we, our emblem is a cross. It's sacrifice. 
It's not triumphalism. And yet, knowing his reciprocity, knowing we have a future, encourages me in the little things that I do in my life with my family, with people out there in the world, because I ping off that future. I know we serve a God who is good. I know we serve a God who will be standing in the end and standing for good. If I didn't know that, if I don't believe that, then I would find it hard to give and give out of my resources, and you would too. And I just want you to appreciate how the future and the reciprocity of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is my irreducible minimum. And, and I'm just, I don't know if you ever grow weary in your Christian faith. We are bombarded as followers of Christ with a world that increasingly and will increasingly mocks the Bible, mocks Jesus. If you have never come to a firm, immovable, decision about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you need to do that. Because he has been raised. And that's my irreducible minimum. I'll never give that up. I'll never move off of that. But because I have accepted that, because I'm convinced of it, on scriptural, historical, on every level and ground, and no matter what science or some professor or teacher or anyone else says to me, that is my cornerstone. But because of that, listen, because I know he has been raised. He has done what no one else has done. Because he has been raised, it tells me that his death was not just an unfortunate tragedy. Spruced up by intoxicated followers who couldn't handle that he had been crucified. It tells me that he died for a purpose, the purpose that he had been teaching all along. That he died for you and for me and for our sins for a debts that we each and every one of us owe that we can never repay in ourselves or on our own merit. He died for you and me. And the fact that he should die because he was raised, I know he died for a purpose, and that he should die for that purpose tells me that God is good. God is gracious. God is loving and that he sent his son for this reason, and that God will win, and that his path and his process is humble and sacrificial, and it's the path of the cross. 
And because I know that he is good and in the end he will triumph and because of the resurrection that's validated and that Jesus is going to come, then I can live sacrificially. I can take it on the chin in terms of what people think of me or my ego. I can find resources within myself through faith knowing that in the end, God, God will vindicate good, vindicate grace, vindicate love. Do you realize that every time you love someone, forgive someone, show mercy, show care, it's costing you. You're saying, I'll absorb the cost of helping, of loving, of forgiving, of showing mercy. I won't expect it in kind. And that's what God has done in the cross of Jesus Christ for each of us. And you will be taken advantage of. There will be people who will take advantage of grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and beauty. Evil. Don't be surprised. Evil will get the upper hand. But one day, God will win. He will vindicate good. And because of the love of God, I'm willing. That's my choice. That's your choice too, to live for him and serve him. And doing that day to day with stubborn and difficult children or difficult and stubborn parents and classmates and coworkers and people in the marketplace and on the streets, but that sets you apart. It makes you Christ-like. And when you draw on his goodness, his love, his grace, his mercy, his spirit will empower you and work through you. And it'll make a difference in your life because of decisions that you make today or because of decisions that I made in 1972 and have been making right along. Eyeballing his return, expectant, energized by his reciprocity, and faithful and earnest about his revelation. In Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12, just in other words, earlier in this chapter, Jesus said, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man, shall confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men, shall be denied before the angels of God. And then just a little later, he says to his disciples, be ready, the Son of Man is going to come like a thief. That's the one we live for. That's the revelation that we hope for. I was reading this week, and uh, I like to read about history and historical figures, and I was reading about a great leader in Athens, Pericles. He was helped to prominence by Anaxagoras. 
Anaxagoras was a wise man, an older man who took him under his wing and counseled Pericles and helped him to become this great leader and statesman. And Pericles got so involved in public policy and public affairs that he basically, to make a short, long story short, he forgot about Anaxagoras. And Anaxagoras, in part, in, in neglect, you know, he, he fell in difficult times and came upon sickness, and now he was near to death. And finally, word of his condition and state reached Pericles, and Pericles dropped everything and traveled to where Anaxagoras was. And he didn't want to lose Anaxagoras, and he was really concerned about him. And Anaxagoras said just this to Pericles because he was really weak and on the point of death at that point. And he kind of whispered to Pericles this wisdom. He said, Pericles, those who need a lamp, pour oil into it. What he was saying to Pericles is, you don't want my lamp to go out, but you haven't put any oil in it. And it was advice not just to chastise him, but to encourage him. Anaxagoras, don't neglect the people that you depend upon. And to speak real candidly to us, I know this in my own personal walk with Christ. There are times in my, there were periods of time in my Christian walk that I, would, I neglected him unless I really needed him. That's not what Jesus is picturing here. He's saying, keep your lamps lit. Stay ready for work. Be involved in my business. I don't know what kind of decisions that might cause you to make this morning in your own life. There might be something in which you uh, say to the Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step up in this area. I've been putting it off too long. The Lord helps us all so generously, but he also wants to engage us in his business, which is reaching others. And that can be a fortunate life, not only because of the blessings that come to us, but the blessing it is to him when he finds us about his business. Will you stand with me? You know, as I close in prayer, I just want to remind you that um, I'll be up here as will the pastoral staff and elders and their wives. And if you would like to pray about something the Lord has laid on your heart or another person, we invite you to come. Let's get busy out there. All right. Father, thank you for your, for your love, for your goodness. Thank you for your word, your son, the work of your spirit in our lives. You never let us go. Father, we pray that uh, we might be mindful of you in greater ways this week as we step out in service. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, God bless you.